Listeners, start your engines. Detours episode 60. Rob here. On this episode, we're wrapping up the original X Men trilogy as we move along through our X Men mega series 10 films on the 23rd anniversary of the original movie. Lots of good stuff to cover. This is the end of this first initial sort of quasi phase of this increasingly convoluted franchise. And uh, on this episode, I am joined by Jeremiah Stewart of Let's Talk to discuss 2006's X-Men The Last Stand. Obviously, this is the first of several, I would say, less beloved entries in this franchise. But is there anything here worth salvaging? What do we think of The Last Stand? Does it deserve this reputation as, well, the first time the X-Men franchise dropped the ball? We're going to get into all of that. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this episode. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about 2006's X-Men, The Last Stand. A major pharmaceutical company has developed a way to suppress the mutant X gene permanently. They're calling it a cure. There's nothing to cure. Nothing's wrong with any of us for that matter. You of all people know how fast the weather can change. Did you find what you were looking for? The source of the cure is a mutant. More powerful than you. Logan! Gee, something woke her. But she has to be controlled. You know, sometimes when you cage the beast, I can't do this. The beast gets angry. that this world has never witnessed. Magneto's got an army out there. You go to war, you might not come home. She might not come home. You ready for that? We're not kids anymore. Hey, I'm not your father. If you want to go, be sure it's what you want. It's time we make our choice. If you're with us, then be with us. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we're continuing our long journey through the X-Men franchise. That's 10 X-Men movies, not including the Deadpools and New Mutants. So we are now talking 2006's X-Men The Last Stand, the third film in the original, I guess what's now known as the original trilogy for this (laughs) interconnected, multi-cast, multi-generational uh, cinematic universe, sort of. Is this is this quasi the like sort of the first comic book based cinematic universe? I guess it kind of beat MCU to the punch, right? Um, kind of, kind yeah, of. Yeah, I, I, I see. But then it just tried copying MCU later on, and it, it's very important for Marvel. We'll just say that one. Yeah, this is definitely. a vital series for Marvel and for the MCU in general. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it started like. 
and then we'll introduce our guests. We're already kind of, you could tell we're interested and excited to talk about this movie <laughs> because it, it started like just any other superhero franchise where we had the original trilogy that concludes this film. And then they're like post Iron Man is when they're like prequels and uh, spinoffs and it gets very inconsistent with the, the timelines and the logic and all of that stuff. But that that's that's a future conversation. This time we're talking The Last Stand, and I'm honored to welcome to the show Jeremiah Stewart. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me back. Yeah. Ooh, I have a lot of memories of this movie. <laughs> the last time you were on the show, a we were talking mutants them. as well. Last time we talked Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Very days. different types of mutants. <laughs> yeah. This is a I movie even... I was alive for seeing, and I saw in theaters opening night with my entire senior class. It does not end with the planet blowing up. Spoilers for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Although, no. <laughs> considering how some people reacted to this movie, they may have preferred that. I don't know. Uh, we will get into the, the reception of this film. So, uh, before we get to X-Men The Last Stand, what is your history with the X-Men uh, property in general and then going into the films? Well, as a kid, I watched the Fox X-Men show. I didn't have TV no. growing up, but we, I'd see it when it was on TV when I could. I had X-Men comics growing up. I actually think this one was my first one I saw in theaters. I wasn't glad to see the other two in theaters when they came out because all my parents knew is a naked woman painted blue. <laughs> well, yeah. they advertised it a ton. And since then, I've seen most of them in theaters. My wife and I got all the X-Men animated. Actually, we, we saw all the animated series while we were dating. Uh, most of it we even nice. were pre- coherent for. And uh, I've seen what Wolverine in the X-Men. I've seen large chunks of X-Men Evolution. I, I, I connect pretty well with the X-Men. Um, I just looked at my comics. I don't have as much X-Men comics as I thought I did. Mm. This particular storyline, for example, I had heard of, but I'd never actually seen. Other storylines I remembered quite well, but that Dark Phoenix I had never actually read before I saw anything in this movie, so probably left me unscathed as far as some of the people who saw it. But I, I, I paid pretty close attention, and I, honestly, for a lot of the time, I preferred X Men, an X Men movie over most. I find it more interesting than most MCU movies, mm-hmm. as far as like, yeah, am I going to like it or not? Right. Well. It's yeah, it's it's an interesting counterpoint to the MCU, I think, because for better or worse, the MCU is a very consistent experience and you kind of know what you're going to get. And there's a certain formula to to it, whether a filmmaker elevates it or just like kind of rides that, you know, rests on their laurels and like lets the 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 characters do the heavy lifting. That's kind of you know, depends on the film, but with these movies, there's such a wide range. And that's part of why I was excited to talk about them. Like they're all over the place, good, bad, <laughs> like the story, like very different takes on the material. Uh, even though we do have a, like four Brian singers in this thing, it's still, even the Brian singer movies feel different from each other, which is cool. And, and this movie doesn't matter when this movie came out, this was like a mega cast. As far as yeah. movies go, this was like, like the cast was so big, it just filled up the entire poster type thing. And some of these people got more famous later. Some of them were already famous by then, but like until days of future past, this one was like the most like Academy award winning cast that they had for a while. And there, mm-hmm. there was a lot of awards in this cast, you know, Kelsey yeah. Grammer, right. Off, you know, off of Frasier, um, 
you know, Ian McCullen off of Lord of the Rings. Uh, of course, you know, Sir Patrick Stewart, you know, all these people were just huge by this time. Yeah. And, uh, and at least one character's lines who came straight for the internet. <laughs> yes. Which we'll <laughs> mention later for sure. But yeah, this movie was, was, was huge. It was massive. Yeah, it was, it was. And, and speaking of Brian Singer, he obviously directed the first two movies, uh, and then dropped out of this to do Superman returns. Uh, so instead we got Brett Ratner of uh, rush hour, rush hour Two, rush hour three and red dragon uh, money, I think it's money talks, red dragon. This. Yeah. But there, one thing with this movie though, not only did Brian Singer leave, but mm-hmm. John Ottman left who did the music, yep. which X two score and theme is amazing, which is why they brought it back for days of future past and X-Men yeah. apocalypse. Um, that score is absolutely flawless. He also took the writers with him who had done the stories of the other ones, including, if I recall right, I think David Hayter, the guy who voices like Metal, um, Solid Snake and Metal Gear Solid. He's one of the writers for X2. They took him with them. They took the people who wrote the original script for this movie. Um, they took James Marsden. <laughs> uh, they, <laughs> they took a lot of pieces from X2 yeah. to this movie. A lot of stuff that already been they've been trying to set it up with. I think, was, if I recall right, there was a video game that had Nightcrawler that was trying to set up what we're going to do in X3. And he left to do Superman, which was a dream of his. And I liked that Superman movie, so I'm not going to say anything bad about it at all. Right. But you can tell through this movie that it was a rush job at the end, figure out what the heck they're going to do. Um, but and they almost- bring in Brett Ratner, though, who did, who did make the movie. Like, credit to him. He came into a rather difficult situation mm-hmm. and made the movie happen. That is hard. Yeah, absolutely. And this was uh, up to this point. This is this thing was like the mo- one of the most expensive movies ever made up up to this point in two thousand six. It's two hundred and ten million, and that made four sixty worldwide. So obviously, this was still stands as uh, I think not counting the Deadpool's again of the movies we're covering, like the third highest grossing behind uh, Days of Future Past and Logan. So uh, you know, commercially, it definitely delivered. It's it, this, it's it's funny. It's a weird like. It's a weird like uh, cross section of sliding doors scenarios with this movie because one is the Brian Singer of it all. Matthew Vaughn was apparently almost brought oh, in for this. Should, I, had, I actually had the list of directors. So yeah, it's e. crazy. Jackman, Go for it. His contract had a pr- list of approved directors, and so when Brian Singer left, the first person he went to was Darren Aronofsky because Hugh Jackman had just worked with him with The Fountain, right? And he's been approached to work on so many superhero movies and drops out all the time, but. I do not think that would have worked well. I've seen Noah. It would have been so happy. And then they went to Joss Whedon because he wrote the gifted storyline, which was yeah. in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but he was working on a Wonder Woman film, which did not happen. That movie looked terrible. Don't, don't, don't rather. It should not <laughs> happen. And then they went to Rob Bowman and Alex Proyas. Proyas who did, um, the dark crow. city, the crow, yeah. I robot, knowing gods of Egypt. Who I think could have done an interesting, who could have done an interesting movie. Yeah. Poros turned it turned it down because of issues with 20th Century Fox's president with iRobot. Then they approached Zack Snyder. Free 300, but Zack yeah. Snyder was already committed to making 300. Peter Berg was then considered, and he turned it down. Guillermo del Toro was was offered, he turned it down to do Pan's Labyrinth. Good for him I mean, on that one. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and then this is February 2005. They still have no director signed. 
And yeah. the film has a May 2006 release date. There's no director, <laughs> February 2005. Okay. Gosh. And filming was getting ready to start in July. Okay. So one month later, they signed Matthew Vaughn, who, and pushed the release date to Memorial Day weekend. Vaughn cast Kelsey Grammer, uh, Daniel Ramirez, Vinnie Jones. And then he withdrew before filming began because he said family issues and he didn't want the tight deadlines, which is weird because when he did came back, he made a movie in 13 months. Yeah. When he did uh, the next one. And then they signed Brett Ratner on June 5th, 2005. And the movie started shooting the beginning of July. Wow. Jeez. And it came it makes out you, it, less it, than a it year makes, later. It makes you appreciate <laughs> That this movie is like as watchable as it is, I think. Let's put it that way. Yeah, the and, fact that he was able to make this movie in under a year. It's coherent. Is amazing. Yeah. And they had already had writers. Thank goodness. Can you imagine if they didn't have any writers for this one? With Simon Kinberg, who ended up staying forever. And Zach Penn, who worked with X2. I think he wrote The Avengers. He's written a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know he wrote uh, Ready Player One. He wrote Free Guy. He's probably directed things by now, too. But, you know, he's written a lot of things. The fact that this movie exists shows, like, how well Ratner, despite his other issues, he has personal issues, how well yeah. he was able to at least keep this thing going. Because with so many egos and pieces, this thing could have flown off the rails like crazy and just died. Mm-hmm. But either Laurel, Lauren Donner, Schuler Donner, or Abby Arad might have had more control than we thought, or just Brett Ratner was able to keep things under control, or just everyone's egos were in check. Whatever it was, it happened and came out less than a year after he started and looks pretty good. Yeah. It's held, held together with like scotch tape and rubber bands, but <laughs> it, they, I think they the fact it that off. it was like 40 minutes shorter than X2 helped a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. That's funny you mentioned Simon Kinberg. So this is the first of two mostly, I would say mostly disliked, and I'm being gentle there, dis- takes on the Dark Phoenix saga in which Simon Kinberg was involved. Obviously, he directed the the Dark Phoenix film uh, from 2019, which we will get to on this mega series. And like you said, Joss Whedon's gifted story and, uh, and the Dark, Dark Phoenix. Phoenix story are, are both kind of tied in here. Which, you know, it's the first it's the first of these films to kind of shrug off, to finally move past Wolverine's mystery, the mystery of his past and all of that, which plays so heavily in the first two movies. I think that's a smart move to like drop that finally. But and, and would you Kimber, agree? this is the first of seven yeah. X-Men movies he worked on. He worked on <sighs> yeah, I know. seven of these. Too many. <laughs> Too many. It's just before we before we get into because there's a there's a lot of there's a lot to get into with this one. What is your general and what are you, what are your general thoughts on this? Is this, is this a movie you, you, you mildly defend? Do you think this is the worst of all of that? Like where, where you land on, on it's the last the stance? Okay. No, I, near I, the I worst. agree. Yeah. It's, I will yeah. defend this one for the most part. I even rewatched it recently just to see. And there are yeah. some things that this movie does better than current Marvel does, mm, ooh, which I amazes me. Um, I, I have to say, I really like the leads. Like mm-hmm. the fact that I think that uh, Sir Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen are perfectly cast. Absolutely. Says a lot and they carry a lot with me. 
I still like Kelsey Grammer as Beast. He was more of the comic book Beast than we got later. And the fact that this movie just moves, it doesn't slow down ever, um, helps it. X2 and X1 both slowed down almost fatally in some parts. Mm-hmm. This movie never slows down, and I think that helps it a lot, because if it had slowed down, it would have caused problems. It still has some problems. It still has some story problems, but uh, I will defend this movie. It's it's nowhere near the worst in in X-Men. It goes way further down than this. <laughs> yeah, I would argue, I mean, I think this is a better version of the Dark Phoenix story than we get in Dark Phoenix. That is that is the one, that's the only movie of all 10 of these that I that I haven't seen since theaters. All of them I've rewatched periodically. It might be a better because, Dark Phoenix story, though of course both of them were compromised to reasons outside of their control. Right, well, yes. Mm, yeah, I mean, possibly. Yeah, it's a, overall a, a more coherent, rewatchable movie, I guess, than Dark Phoenix itself. But yeah, that's, I'd probably say that. I've rewatched both. Right, but but yeah, I can say that. Dark Phoenix, honestly, is the least interesting side of this story, though. Yeah, I want to say that that Dark Phoenix is not the most interesting part of this movie. I, it's it's tricky because that's I think that's part of why this is so divisive. And again, I'm saying that gently. I feel like generally people it's consider the hook this that got us to this movie, movie, but it's not the part of the movie that actually has the emotion in it. Well, well, what's weird about this movie, and this is again, this is a, a, something that people have been saying forever. This, the, the cardinal sin of this movie is that it tries to do both storylines, and it, can, it doesn't really fully commit to either. And and it's a hundred minutes, like you were saying, which could be good if it had focused on one of the storylines, but because it's trying to do both. It doesn't work. It shouldn't be this. This movie shouldn't be the same length as the origin story if it's trying to do two giant storylines at the same time. Because then what happens is it opens with the the Jean stuff, and then she comes in, and there's like a sequence and a half of her, and then she's standing around for most of the second half of the movie. And oh. so you're like, well, which which one are we doing here, movie? Like the Cure stuff has a lot of, you know, real life ramifications. It builds on the whole allegory of all of this, of all of the mutants, uh, you know, the mutant gene and all of that. But it, it's, it, they don't give that enough room to breathe because they keep going back and forth. So can we start at the, start at the beginning of this movie? So this movie starts Absolutely. in the eighties, Xavier and Len, Eric Lyncher are meeting Jean Grey at her house and invited her to the school. In a scene mm-hmm. that will forever throw a wrench into any idea of continuity in this franchise. Yep. I'm glad you pointed forever. that out. But they de-aged both actors for that scene. Yeah. And when they initially de-aged them, both actors were so freaked out that they said, please put on some more wrinkles. It's looking, w- it, it freaked us out. And having rewatched it recently, I will say the de-aged version of Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen in 2006 looks better than de-aged Robert Downey Jr. in Civil War. And a mm. lot of the Marvel yeah. ones where you see them de-aged, like uh, some of them are better. Yes. Some of yeah, them yeah. do better, but like the Robert Downey Jr. one where it's like sounds, it feels very floaty head. I would say a lot of the Michael Douglas ones don't really look right. It, the, the Robert Downey they, the Jr. one they, slides by because it's a simulation. So it kind of like splits the difference. You're like, oh, it's, it's you know, it's uh, a, it's um, sort of uh, augmented reality kind of thing. Yeah. So they almost it, You just thought though in it. 10 yeah, years yes. though, it would have been, it would have gotten better. Right. But this one looks pretty darn good. And you get, that's when you get your, um, a lot of cameos from X-Men writers and from Stan Lee and so on in that opening scene. Mm-hmm. 
right. then you have the next scene's a kid trying to cut off his wings in the bathroom with a bone saw. Yeah. <laughs> That's rough. Which is jarring, which it shows the whole heart of this movie. You know, the fact that that one character is only in this movie quite literally to jump out a window mm-hmm. and fly away on a wire. Oh, that flight scene looked rough. I don't know how they could have done it better, but it looked, it looked very wiry, uh, which yeah. it was clearly it was on a wire. Oh man. Yeah. That, so that opening, I, that opening, like the de-aging thing, I think looks better than a lot of the stuff that the MCU has done. But I think some of that has to do with, they're more concerned with the general feel and good enough works fine on their timeline. While this right. one was literally pioneering something. Yeah. And this so is the first time sure I had ever right. seen anything like that in a major movie for sure. Yeah. So I'm going to disagree with you slightly about how they didn't do. Sure. I, well, okay. Dark Phoenix side. I don't think they, anything to do with dark Phoenix in this movie is really not good. Other, outside of some good action, really not good at all. I, I make fun of the fact that Cyclops literally dies from making out to death. <laughs> well, she also, one thing I wanted to ask too, is like sh- he, she calls him there. Why does she call him there? Why does she need him there? Does she need to, to write him, him out of the blast? movie? <laughs> I know, but it yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's like she does she. It's almost like she needs him there to blast into the water to free her, but that doesn't make any sense because she's so powerful. So it's just like like no. you said, that's literally just because we need. It, it, it's completely nonsensical. Uh, there's the only thing of the Dark Phoenix storyline that I will mildly defend is I do think that the scene where she wakes up with Logan uh, and her escaping the mansion. I do think that's. I think that's probably the best the best that you get from that storyline. I also don't like even her though look it's kind because, of a two note performance but because yeah, like sorry, she died. So why is her hair suddenly so much longer? I know. <laughs> I, I don't understand the logic of some some of these movies, but like anytime they show the cure, like the the, the kid named the Jimmy and so on, and like with uh, the beast with beast uh, arguing yeah. the ethics of it, all that stuff is great. Like there's the scene where. Um, the Brotherhood of Mutants go rescue Mystique because Mystique is captured, mm-hmm. and you know they bust her out, and um, you know it's a, it's a good scene, and they rescue all these guys, and then one of them gets one shot out at her and turns her human, and he just turns on her instantly. That yep. is a darn good scene for X Men. I agree. So it's exactly 100%. what the moral is, and then you have Beast arguing with the president, and them talking about how it w- wouldn't be used as a weapon, but it was used as a weapon, and he knew mm-hmm. it was going to. Like so all that stuff is where X Men stands really well this movie does add a lot of weird x-men though like multiple man why <laughs> juggernaut good well well Listo, his, why? his portrayal his portrayal in this movie of juggernaut good that's my question uh well unless you're gonna go complete juggernaut where juggernaut's like the brother of xavier right you're not gonna really have much more of a character arc Anyway, so this one's fine. I like Vinnie Jones as an actor. Yeah. He gets to so say, I'm can, the juggernaut bitch, which, you know. Yes, if I'm the I internet, yes. That. Which I can handle, <laughs> but like, Magneto, rec- uh, like, uh, recruiting all, like, the goth people. Yeah. All that stuff was weird. Like, I, I never understood in X-Men where the, where the people that literally read the powers of power levels of people. Yeah. I didn't see how that was. <laughs> it was annoying. But I, I know who Callisto is. Right. Because she's with the Morlocks and all that. Well, unless you're going to actually introduce that properly, why introduce it? Other than the fact that she's a Chris Claremont character. 
why? I, I don't I don't see the point of bringing her in. They bring in a lot of people in who are just there, and they just kind of look the, like androgynous people. To the point that, like, in the battle, Magneto's like, Arclight, use your shockwaves. I'm like, who the hell is Arclight? Which one is that? They needed um, fodder. They needed a lot of yeah. fodder. Yeah. Because they lost Mystique. And I would say Mystique, Mystique is the biggest loss of this movie. I agree. Because yeah. Mystique, that 100%. Rebecca Romaine Stamos is amazing in the first two movies. Yeah. Which is outstanding because she is known as a model <laughs> who was naked and painted blue. Right. She should not be, you know, carrying it over all these, you know, thespians that have been, you know, amazing us for years. But well, the, her loss, the first her scenes are good, but her loss was, yeah. ha- was hard. Well, the first one set her up as like essentially the second main villain of this franchise after Magneto, like Magneto's right hand. And then the, the second one gave her a, a much expanded role. She had more than one line of dialogue. She had a lot more to do in sort of the the kind of a, a assault on Alkali Lake uh, and, you know, with the scenes with Stryker and all that stuff. So I love all of that. Uh, but no, I agree with you. Like the the this movie really is being carried on the backs of on the back of Ian McKellen as Magneto. I think he carries this movie so much. Really every scene he's in, in any of these movies, he brings so much to it. But because as you mentioned, uh, he and Patrick Stewart are, I I mentioned on the, the episode when we talked about the first film about the casting, those two actors is the best decision this franchise ever made because it just, anytime the material suffers or whatever you have, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen to give it their all. And here, think of any actor who looks the part of Patch of Charles Xavier in two thousand and two thousand, I guess the first one came out. Yeah, two thousand. Who looks like? Is there any other actor you could possibly think of who could just slide into that role? No, exactly. There's no. I had he he was the one that everyone, including myself, who watched the '90s cartoon and had the trading cards and the comics and whatever. He was everybody's. Everybody had fan casted him as Professor X anyway, so they made it happen. So having him in there was like the equivalent of the John Krasinski as, uh, as Mr. Fantastic had that been a good idea. And then, and had they committed to that, which they were probably not going to. Yeah. And then, you know, the other complaints people had through all these movies was sidelining Cyclops and this movie literally Mm -hmm. sidelines him. (laughs) He did. Yeah. But, you know, going through this one, like rogue, I never thought was really given justice in these movies, but I do like how in this movie, she actually has a moral quandary of, would you actually want to grow up living like that for the rest of your life where touching someone kills them and then she thought her boyfriend was going with kitty pride uh with that was the first time i ever saw i guess elliot page right ever in a movie i don't think i've ever saw yeah well this was before juno and all the all the other stuff inception and everything yeah and Kitty Pride was done well enough where I knew I knew that was Kitty Pride instantly. And Kitty Pride had been in other movies, but like this is the first time he got his chance to shine. You got to see Colossus right. in a role. You got to see Sentinels, kind of. Oh boy, that trailer cheated us on the Sentinels, though. It looked like they were going to be <laughs> yeah. in this movie, and instead you got a head. I'm like, and they still never done <laughs> no, Sentinels. There's, there's right. a lot. There's a lot of fan service in this movie. Like people oh, say that now with every Marvel special? movie. They, yeah, is it fastball? I had that in my in my notes. Yeah, exactly. Fastball well, special. Zach Penn, who wrote this movie? Danger wrote, Room wrote Avengers and wrote Incredible Hulk. So he knows how to do fan service. Right. He wrote Ready Player One for crying out loud. That is fan service to boot. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but they give us lots of little fan service all over the place. You can see lots of mutants in general. 
which was good, even though most of them get to die. But really, any time the Phoenix comes out as any sort of threat, like when she joins Magneto onward, it's just like, why are you in this movie? Other than <laughs> for two scenes. There are yeah. she's oh, she's literally here for three scenes, two of them to kill people and one to die. Right. You know, the scene with Scott Summers, awful, pretty awful. It's, it's a make pretty awful scene. Make out with tongue sure. until he dies. The scene where she takes out Sir Patrick Stewart with Charles Xavier. I love that scene, but it's because Charles Xavier, because uh, Patrick Stewart, not Charles, is a very, very good actor, and he sells mm-hmm. it. And I, well, I, I what, take it fully. Well, what what I love about that sequence, and that's really kind of a show stopping sequence in the middle of the whole movie. Like pa- the whole Cure storyline pauses for that whole scene at Jean's old house. I, is the showdown between Phoenix and Professor X, but also the way Magneto reacts to everything, then the the sort of him realizing that I, I, what have I done? I pushed her too far kind of thing. And he lost his best friend he, right there. He, the exactly, guy who stuck with exactly. him when he was in prison yes. and when he deserved stuff. And he, at least he respected fully. And he just got vaporized because he pushed 100%. her. And yep. then he's still playing with fire throughout the rest of the movie. It's like, Oh man, exactly. you, you are playing with fire. But this all feels consistent. This is what I had in my notes. Like Magneto is probably the most consistent character in this whole trilogy. Because he's well, he's so committed to the cause that he will inadvertently sacrifice his best friend. That he will, uh, you know, dro- drop Mystique on a dime because well, you're not one of us anymore. So you know, I'm sorry, you're out. You know, even the line where he's like, "She was so beautiful," and walks away. It gives me like echoes to what uh, First Class does later with the perfection, not with the whole meme yeah, I that, think, that became. I think the way he played it really helped inform what Fassbender did later, but they gave Fassbender Absolutely. more to play with. Not that Fassbender needed it, because Fassbender is a darn good actor himself, but he yeah. gave him enough to play with that it made, it just made the whole thing work. And um, yeah, that Xavier scene where he just disintegrated, that hit really hard in yeah. this movie to the point of, I remember people crying in the theater. Like I went, I saw this movie in the biggest theater in my state, it was 1,200 seats at midnight with my entire senior class. We graduated and just went to movie theater because why not? It was loud. It was obnoxious. But when Xavier got vaporized, crying. Lots of crying. And that scene was good. Yeah. And then you have all this stuff with the FBI attacking Magneto's base in the woods. And you have like um, multiple men, which, yeah, okay, not really good scene in general. Alcatraz, the Battle of Alcatraz with Golden Gate Bridge is good, though, because you got to see Magneto actually do cool stuff. But it, it's a big action scene that I think Brett Ratner does well in. Because when I think of action scenes that um, Singer did in previous movies, there's only one that really stands out. He has a, good ta- a lot of good talkie scenes, but only one action scene really stands out, and that's the opening scene of X2. Mm-hmm. Where Nightcrawler yeah. was sorely needed in this movie. Yeah, that's that's a bummer. I think Alan Cumming just didn't want to do the makeup again, right? Wasn't that what supposedly? Yeah, was, and they did something with his arc in the in a video game. There's yeah. stuff I could look it up more, but it's not in this stuff, so it doesn't really matter. But the Battle of Alcatraz is is a solid action scene, which is the biggest they've ever done with this franchise, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Though you have so much of that, the cure just being shot out of guns left and right. Like really, how much of that stuff did you make? <laughs> Apparently, as much as the, the script a needs, lot. Yeah. 
And how many mutants did he gather for that? Because he, they're just getting mowed down by Cure until Arclight does his little clappy clap and smacks, breaks, breaks all the plastic guns up. But another casting, I will say, is pretty darn good. Hank McCoy in this movie. Uh, forget his name. He's actor yep. who's played Kelsey him. Grammer. Kelsey Grammer. That is a, about as perfect as you can get for that character. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, he's he's, and, and you would never sold, like. I wouldn't have thought of him as as playing Beast, and yet he's he's it's he like a kind of a genius. Lines like mm-hmm. by my stars and garters. That is not <laughs> yeah. a line you can feed to someone and have them actually deliver. Unless they're a good actor, because that is that is a nonsense line of dialogue. <laughs> it, it's also for people that grew up with the 90s show. It's like he's one of the last, aside from, I think, Jubilee and Gambit, one of the last like original like main cast lineup of that show that, to appear in in these movies. Yeah, I think the only one uh, left you know, that we've never seen, because technically you saw Jubilee multiple times in these movies. She's just yeah, really kind of. But, but she, we've never she seen does, she, Forge, She gets though. lines, I think. In, yeah, that's yeah, true. That's we true. never saw Forge. And I remember the, the, Beast early on, people thought Beast died. Me. People thought Beast died early on in that X, in that X-Men series. I remember those episodes. Mm-hmm. But, you know... The whole- even having having Beast here as the Secretary of Mutant Affairs, even that like serves a story purpose because the, the way X2 ends is with Char- uh, Professor X giving the president sort of a... A, a gentle ultimatum, a gentle <laughs> oh, <no>. threat. <laughs> yeah, let's put it that way. Uh, dealing with the the mutant, air quotes problem, and here with Beast as the Secretary of Mutant Affairs, and in obviously this movie being way more political, you see, you sort of see that that the ramifications of the the end of the previous film, which I think uh, I think is really is really you know kind of cool for continuity's sake. So one thing with this one, so. You have all the stuff with the cure. Like this whole action scene is because of the cure. Mm-hmm. And the whole X-Men response is about the cure. They're trying to get the cure into Magneto. And yeah. this is where the movie kind of like derails itself because Wolverine has Colossus chuck him, which, you know, fastball special, hooray. You know, that's how it's, that's how Colossus does 90% of the time. He either punches people or throws them. Yep. He has him to distract Magneto and Magneto does what Magneto does with Logan all the time in the series. And then, which McCoy, is always fun. <laughs> and then beast gets him with the cure. And I remember the theater gasped when that happened, because that is a point of no return. Like that is, that is a statement right there. Yeah. You stab Magneto with the cure. And then you have this emotional moment where he gets cured and you see it on his face of, Oh no, what, what happened? And then the Phoenix wakes up and it turns into dust particles of CGI everywhere. <laughs> Dozens vaporize. of people. <laughs> yeah. We're going to vaporize everybody. And the Phoenix just isn't good. Now, well, Hugh Jackman sells his part. Absolutely. Where he goes to try to stop and you see like this adamantium coming out and the pain that's going. He's the only one. That, that bit makes sense. I just wish they had done the actual, you know thing a little better but yeah. that part sells well and he stabs her and you know sadness dies <laughs> and i i like that we get I, I mean i don't think the phoenix thing works but there are flickers of of it that i do enjoy like i said every time she seeing, kills someone it works ish it, it works well cyclops i wouldn't say that worked 
Well, it but did what they wanted it to. They I guess the they, they got James Marsden oh, off the set of this movie and over to Superman Returns. I, 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 when she wakes up and she's like flirting with with Wolverine and and uh, they start making out and then she like wraps she like wraps his legs around him, her legs around him, which feels oh, very the like, a, was, like the a, theater was cheering that one. Like that, that's oh. a golden eye callback. That's got to be. Uh, having her do that without Cyclops in there to complete the triangle. The fact that he's not there makes it really hard because Wolverine is not the one who goes with her. Yeah. Ever. Well, there's a triangle, but like Wolverine has more of a romantic connection with storm in the comics. Mm -hmm. than with Jean. Ultimately Jean does go with Cyclops. That's how we have cable. That's how we have a Dawn. That's the fact that he's not there makes it re- really rough. Right. But I remember, so sitting in a theater with 1,200 people at midnight, so you have Gene dying, people knew it was going to happen. You find out that Rogue uh, got the cure. People kind of figured that would happen. She was honestly kind of, a, I was never a fan of True Blood, and so mm-hmm. I was never really Anna Paquin fan. I do remember her from, what was the movie with the geese? Flyway Home? Oh, yeah, I think so. She had the airplane, the guide geese somewhere yeah i wasn't really a big fan of her or her arc in these ones but at least you understood where that went she got the cure bobby saw it and they can hold hands now but i remember the theater at the end there's two scenes right at the end that made Mm -hmm. my theater get very confused first one is magneto playing chess cool callback to his which uh, you know makes sense and then the piece wobbles (laughs) <laughs> and cuts the credits and yep. we're unsure what the heck we just saw and then an even weirder one which if you've seen did you have you seen the uh, commentary or any of the bonus features on this one i probably did but it was so long ago so i saw the commentary mostly for the end and then you get that end credit scene of apparently moira mctaggart who has done way better later Oh, yeah, reading a comatose sure. patient who you did see earlier in the movie did have a scene with Xavier talking about what if you could transfer yourself into another body or something like that. So you did actually see this body before and then it greets in Xavier's voice and leaving her startled. Mm-hmm. That was cut, very confusing. in theaters. <laughs> and the bonus features commentary doesn't make it less confusing. Do you want to say in the commentary? What? <clears throat> I'm scared to ask. So, you know how Xavier has a twin, right? Yes. So, in the comics, I believe he the twin dies in utero. And that's just the way it was. It, the director says, well, Xavier has a twin. So, that what if this twin was born a vegetable and has grew up to be an adult as a vegetable? And then Xavier, since he has an identical twin, has put himself in an identical twin's body. Yeah. What? So, a guy who's never moved before... Should not be crippled and was born a vegetable and somehow grew to adulthood with no issues. And he just put his body in here and he wakes up and he sounds just like Xavier and Moira didn't just like die on the spot. Mm, mm, your explanation is wrong. I also like it how later on they just like they don't explain oh, they, it at all. They just go. No, they, no, not at all. It's just he like he's yeah, he's just it, it's very strange that it's because the explanation the, is dumb. The explanation is yeah. terrible. It doesn't they just need skip, one. They just obviously the end of this movie implies with Magneto, like you said, which which is really one of those kind of like 
blink and you miss it. Did I just see what I saw? Kind of like uh, Inception at the end yep. where the little top, is it, does it look like it's going to stop or slow down? What's going on? It's kind of like that kind of thing, uh, that kind of ambiguous ending. They just assume it, it, it wore off. Everybody's back to normal. <laughs> Resurrects is just in a different body or alive or who cares. We're just saving makes, this in case we need to make more of these later. Basically. And it feels to me like the, the, this, the like first, I guess the beginning of this movie, but they, they didn't have to go against that. This feels like the, like the first where the inconsistencies for this franchise really start. It's the beginning, the very beginning of this movie, like you said, and the very end of this movie where they're just like, eh, nobody cares. Let's move on. It's just, they just pick and choose what elements of the last stand they want to acknowledge basically. Yeah. Though this movie did open up huge. This movie, when it opened, opened up at like 40 something million opening day, which was massive. Though 45 million opening day. Though, think about it. I hold up a 45 million opening day and made 102 million opening weekend. This movie fell like a rock. Yeah. And 122 million Memorial Day weekend. So it fell very quickly. But was the fourth highest opening weekend of all time behind uh, Spider-Man, Shrek 2, and Star Wars Episode 3. So, you know, the, the, the pretty big ones. Yeah, um, definitely. It made like 400 million, 450 million or something like that, which doesn't seem really huge now. Now that's like, oh, look, Fast and Furious made that opening minute. <laughs> but it was the highest of this franchise that they had for quite a while. Mm-hmm. But when you have a budget of 200 and what, 210, $220 million plus yeah. marketing, that is not a profit. No, that was a massive cost. Now they did. I'm pretty sure this movie made a bit on DVD. I'm sure it did. Yeah. Let me look at the numbers. But back then there were still DVD sales, but that that's, that is not a giant like financial you know, boom. Um, especially after Spider-Man. Right. This made about hundred million, 110 million on DVD. So okay. DVD helped for sure. Um, but these are also the ones that have always been like $5 eventually on DVD. All X Men. Yeah, I think that's what I got it for. <laughs> I think that's where I, my DVD came from. Look, the trilogy for three ninety nine. There you go. But it, it did open big. I remember when I saw it in theaters, you know, we had, a 1200 seat theater and then every other screen through like, I think 13 out of the 17 were sold out, which is pretty big. Mm-hmm. Mostly college students. It had a massive drop second weekend, which every X-Men movie has X2 opened at like 80 million and second weekend had like 35 million. They, they, they all had massive drops, but this record for X-Men stood until days of future past, which was even more expensive. Yeah. Um, but it's weird because I'm looking at the cinema score for this movie. And cinema score, of course, is like the public perception of it. This mm-hmm. movie had like a 57% Rotten Tomatoes rating from critics. But an A- minus cinema score, which is not what I would have mm. expected from this movie. Yeah. It's, it's weird for a 100-minute long movie to have so much that it it feels like it feels like at the same time there's things that aren't explored like the two storylines that I said, but also there feels like there's some, like actually some fat on this thing in places. Like, I don't think we needed the 
Bobby, Kitty, Rogue love triangle with the first snow and all of that. Like, who cares about this? It's a movie that could have been 20 minutes longer or 20 minutes shorter and would have been better. Yeah, pick one. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's it's very. It's but very I don't think Bert Vander is really good with emotions, and so if he had made it longer no. and had the scenes sit like Singer would, where they'd have you know the Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart scenes where they just talk and so on, I don't think he can direct those very well. No, I don't think so. He can clearly do action pretty well. He did action pretty darn well, but I don't think he can do the talky scenes very well. And I think that's why this movie always moves. It's like Singer probably would have held on to the mystique scene a bit longer or done more with mystique mm-hmm. afterward because after all you have is that space because she turns on him and you never see her again i know it's a bummer because especially the, there's a lot of good mystique stuff kind of front loaded at the beginning of the movie where she's being interrogated and they talk about like oh did magneto convince you that you don't have a family and then you finally hear her her full name her slave name as she says raven dark and like you said, the whole the the whole rescue mission to get her out of there and the interaction with the guard and she's like, I'm gonna kill you when I get out of here. All that stuff, like all the mystique stuff, like is is gold. Uh I, I agree with everything you said there. I and even then, think Pyro kind of works in this movie, you know, in the limited capacity that he has. Uh particularly with them, you know, of course you gotta get that shot of the ice and the fire <laughs> sort of meeting. Yeah. Well by this uh, time, which is him and fun. Bobby him and Bobby and Pyro Iceman and Pyro, sorry. They, their arcs had been told. Yeah. Like you got the emotional arc of them and their decisions and choices in the previous movie. Yeah. Told very well. And Bobby, this one is mostly there as a foil to work, to help Rogue work through her stuff. But I will say there's two movies that did make this movie drop pretty quickly. So internationally, Mm -hmm. Da Vinci Code held very well. And people might forget, Da Vinci Code made almost $800 million. Oh, yeah. Most of that and McKellen in it, too. And then and then a month later, Dead Man's Chest came out. Yeah. And that true. just like took whatever was left. And so this movie got what it's got. But Da Vinci Code was... Like, that was a phenomenon that got way worse reviews than this movie. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it came out just enough time, a week before. And it, at that time, it was a cultural phenomenon. so And very controversial to talk about and so on. So I, I, I don't think they expected it to compete that much, but it did. But yeah, this movie fell really quickly. You wouldn't expect a movie like this to just to tumble as fast as it did. Mm-hmm. But... Right. It, the opening weekend was big. It was a lot of fun to be there opening weekend. And uh, by that time, we thought X-Men was done. We thought it was to the end because it was staged as the end. It was said it was the end. And box office wise, it looked like it was going to be the end. And we saw no reason for it to continue. And right. so it just, we went out with a bang and with a lot of popcorn. <laughs> oh, how naive we all were that a superhero franchise would, you know, end. <laughs> Back then in 2006. Yeah, it's it it definitely feels like it is positioned as the final chapter of a trilogy and all of that. We finally I feel like even though Cyclops is is done wrong yet for like the third time in a row, basically, (laughs) I do feel like they did. Even though the actor they gave is a good actor for that role. He can do it. And they he's just, been in a million other things. He's very charismatic and he has a lot of range. Like there's like, you could have done a lot with, 
James uh, Marsden as Cyclops. Just because he's in Hop doesn't mean he can't act. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, don't hop. have that against him. Um, but it feels like they finally, like they were giving incrementally giving Halle Berry something more to do, at least as Storm and setting her up. Oh, as, I thought this one finally did leader. Storm at least a little bit of justice. Yeah, exactly. She's a leader of the team and they've, they've still never gone full out crazy with her. I think that's what they're going to do with the MCU mm-hmm. because they can tie her into Black Panther. Absolutely. A lot. And I think that'll be the way to go because they need to make it a little bit different. And I think not focusing on Wolverine and going more with Storm and the other ones, I think is the way to go. Well, I've said this before on other episodes that like I do think and I, I hope and I think that they will hold off on Wolverine for a while. I think they'll establish the original, probably the original lineup of the team, which I think was what Cyclops, Beast and uh, Storm and Angel, maybe I forget. Give there's, us Jubilee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Though I th- I think they'll go that route for sure. I, I, I think so too. I think they're gonna find a way to more integrate them fully into it. And definitely Storm's one way they can go. There's definitely some of the villains they can work in there. Yeah, there, there there's definitely a lot they can do to make it different. Mm-hmm. And but I, I'm definitely not gonna discredit these movies for what they did right. And the, they've showed right. us that you can make these type of spectacle before Marvel did. Like I said, this one, the only successful ones like this was Spider-Man. Yeah. Was Spider-Man bigger? Yes. Much bigger. But Spider-Man was but, also the most popular comic book character of all time. I was so. about to say, exactly. He's, he, he is essentially, and I think Marvel has admitted as much, he's basically the, the Mickey Mouse of Marvel comics. Like, everybody knows Spider-Man. He's the, he, he's he the, the most recognizable. He and Batman are the most popular comic book characters, period. Yeah. And the most successful at the box office and... You know, probably the the I don't know, maybe the easiest to trans to translate to film, just because their their character arcs are pretty are, are pretty uh, universal and pretty basic, and it's easy to understand. Oh, his parents died. He's sad. His uncle got got killed, and he feels responsible. And he's you know yeah, they're it's working. A story we all know it's, it's, and can relate yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. And it's the two like, origin oh. stories, maybe with Superman, the two superhero origin stories that everyone knows that, you know, you don't, you have an access point already. Yeah. Basically. Superman would probably be number three, but yeah. not to discredit X-Men because if I recall right, X-Men number one is one of the top selling comics ever made. I believe it. And X-Men has always been Marvel's way of, of tackling issues like uh, political issues. Yeah. Back then was the cult was uh, stuff like um, cultural wars of the sixties, and then Brian Singer definitely added it into LGBTQ issues. That like, if you didn't get that in X two, <laughs> can you try? Do you ever try not being a mutant? Now X three yeah. tried to continue that. Yeah, I just don't think he know he knew how to do it very well. I think so. He tried. That's the whole point of the cure. It's He's basically saying. It's, it's Magneto and, and Storm that seem to have the strongest viewpoints arguments and, against it. And I think it, there's, it's there, it's not an accident that those two actors are gay and a woman of color uh, that they kind of, I don't know. It feels, it feels baked into the, the performances a little bit too. Yeah. They just didn't have someone who could deliver that very well, but right. they tried. Something they did not do again for oh, when's the next X Men movie where they actually try some social issues. First <laughs> class, I guess, because they sure don't. Yeah, have I guess Wolverine Origins. No, 
I don't think they <laughs> no, did in the Wolverine either. Well, I guess well, the Wolverine's different though. That's a different type of movie. But man, they, yeah. I I do wish I, they had. If Singer had stayed, I think this movie would have been a better movie. But I don't know if he would have had the rest of the X Men. Mm, chaos. I don't know if the franchise would have continued if Singer had stayed because it would have found a way to wrap it up better. I think the whole reason why it continued was because there were loose ends and people were kind of frustrated. Well, it, it, it continued, but it, it did so in a, in a very roundabout way. Right. So this came out, this, these three that are, you know, an interconnected trilogy. Then we get a prequel. Then we get a, a prequel that what, doesn't, that still doesn't quite fit. No, no, not at all. They don't care. <laughs> they don't even try anymore. Uh, by the time you get to Origins, they're just like, ah, whatever. We're doing our own thing. And then they were trying to do a mag. Then they, when the Origins Wolverine was supposed to happen, they had a Magneto right. one planned, which turned first into first class, class. One planned. Yeah, and they kind of merged the two together, which I think exactly. was the best possible way. That's a way to Definitely. merge two stories together. Yes, that, works. that makes. But sense. I think Matthew Vaughn knew how to do that, and he had a good vision. And again, for Origins. with a relatively fast turnaround. It's stupidly fast turnaround. Good grief! I don't. I don't know how he did it, but praise praise to him for whatever the heck encouraged him to do that, and at the same time, got him to succeed. <laughs> and at, and at the same time, what what's what most people would consider first class to be in the if not in the top three, like right up in there in that range yeah. for this franchise. Like everybody universally, I think first class is considered one of the better or best ones. And then and last because stand kind of, of the first opposite. class and because of first class is why days of future past exists. Yes. And exactly. that's the whole reason everything else happened. But that's also days of future past that dystopian 2023 future uh, that we get <laughs> in that movie, which is really weird to say in 2023. That was the 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 next time we see these characters. Well, other than Wolverine in the Wolverine, that was the next time we see the ensemble. You know, chronologically from this point on. So, which and is also which that is, movie exists again, very strange because Brian Singer wanted to fix this movie. Yes. Interesting enough, also written by Simon Kinberg. But he just it, he just keeps it, coming in, messing things up, fixing them, messing them up again. I'm just like, it exists whatever. because Singer wasn't happy with this movie, dude. If you wanted this movie to be a certain way, you should have made the movie. Yeah, exactly. Which ironically, Superman Returns didn't perform as well either at the box office. Like That's this was true. a bigger hit and than Superman, Superman Returns. And Superman kind Returns of, also yeah. had a lot more working against it because it had a budget of like 120 million before it even shot. Wow. That's definitely a movie at, I plan to discuss on this podcast at some point. Cause that's, I just looked at X-Men origins Wolverine. I didn't, I forgot that David Benioff who created game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, wrote that movie <laughs> and skip woods wrote that movie. Yep. Who wrote, you know, classics like a good day to die hard. Everybody's favorite die hard. Right? Man and swordfish. <laughs> yeah. But Ay. I, I enjoy this movie. I think the music's good. I think the performances are as good as they're going to get for this yeah. type of movie from the ones that matter most. I do think Jean Grey is atrocious. I think Archangel uh, Angel in this movie is atrocious. He has nothing to do. <laughs> he jumps out a window. And then he catches his dad, I guess, which is one of like, a, like 15, I guess, character subplots that are supposed to be relevant, but kind of just feel like afterthoughts. I thought Elliot Page and Vinnie Jones were good. 
Yeah. I thought Callisto in the early pages. I forgot what the whole group is called, but although Brotherhood of Mutants. Well, no, but they're, they're Callisto is officially a character we had just mentioned before. Another different group. Yeah. But they're all useless. Halle Berry is probably better than she's been in the other ones. And I don't like Rogue in general in these movies. I, I think Rogue worked in the first one as sort of the entry point to the world. But then, yeah, then other than that, after the first one, they don't know what to do with her. Yeah. And then Kelsey Grammer's great. Marsden is not Definitely. in it enough for me to matter. Rebecca Romaine's not in it enough for me to matter. Sean Ashmore apparently was invited to play Jimmy Olsen in Superman Returns. And he's the one that turned it down because he wanted mm. to be, you know, he wanted to turn it. He was promised he'd turn into ice in this movie. And he, darn it, he was going he to turn into ice. He was an ice man, as as advertised. Pyro was fine. You know, th- this movie has a good cast and it survives because of it. But mm-hmm. it isn't much more than that. It's, it's like cotton candy. It'll dissolve after you eat it, but you'll enjoy it while you're eating it. And uh, I'm just more of amazed that it actually happened and actually, you know, got done. Because unlike First Class, this movie is a significantly bigger movie than First Class is. Yeah, definitely. A massive budget. And uh, I'll respect Barry Anna for that one. It's one thing I'll respect him for. Not much else. But I'll respect him for that. And uh, it's not the best movie. It's not the worst movie of the franchise. It's definitely in the middle. Um, but if you've never seen it, definitely watch it with the um, commentary track. It's, it's like the guy read a bunch of comic books. But he didn't remember any of them. He just remembered random scenes from them. And then got <laughs> so proud that he, that he remembered those scenes and put them in the movie. Wow. Okay. That That's makes a lot it, of sense, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good action. It moves. It never slows down. You're not bored while watching this movie, except maybe the ice the, skating scene. The, 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 the guy with the, um, the only action scene that I'm like, what is this even? Is uh, when Wolverine's in the woods and that random guy with the spikes coming out of his arms. I'm like, who is this guy? Why oh, do yeah, I like care? When the, when the FBI swarmed <laughs> the base and then there's like spiky people, spiky people. Like, uh, yeah. What is this? Who are these people? <laughs> like, there's so many characters in this movie. Why are we now random guy with spikes coming out of his arms is who Wolverine is. Like, what is going on? That makes no sense to me. Also, the other thing that kind of annoyed me is that I've, I read stuff at the time that, at the end of the first movie, when Magneto's machine goes off, there's a shot of Jean Grey like reacting, like shivering almost kind of, or like looking off, like what the hell was just was what just happened. And then in the second movie, when it starts, she already is having her powers are like already sort of uh, spiraling out of control. And uh, the Phoenix is sort of awakened. So it was sort of implied in stuff that I read that that Magneto's machine sort of awakened the Phoenix within her or something. And then this movie never touches that, which always annoys the hell out of me because again, it's the continuity being dropped instead. He like Charles sealed her powers off from her consciousness. And there was this dual personality of the Phoenix and all this other stuff that we never knew about. And it just feels really, you know, hack kind of tacked on. There's interviews I've seen with some of the writers of this movie. I can't remember which one where they talk about their plan for X three and, um, mm-hmm. and some of that. Yeah. They, they had, they had laid it out. It was actually thought out. Unlike, you know, yeah. like star Wars sequels. It actually laid it out and thought it out and they kept some of it, but you know, that's a movie that Brian Singer had to make and he didn't right. make it and it got hurt because of it. So, but they were stuck with the way X two ended. They had to do the Phoenix thing. But clearly everyone else involved was more interested in the cure storyline. And so this is what we got, which is a kind of a bummer. 
Like it almost yeah. would have been better. Like put pa- press pause on the the Phoenix thing, come back to that in another movie, and just have this be the Cure storyline. But again, like they had Vamka Jensen under contract. I guess at the time, maybe they were just planning on making these three. Uh, it's it's unclear. But so I, I agree with just, you. That- just so you know, the, the, before I forget about it, the two tie-ins from video games, one was called mm-hmm. X2 Wolverine's Revenge. It was a tie-in yeah. for X2. I think I played it. was uh, Wolverine finding his way through the Weapon X facility. So that one made sense. The other one was called Wolverine, X-Men. Wolverine the, voiced by Mar- Mark Hamill, by the way, too. Yes. In that, if I remember correctly. The other one is X-Men, the official game, which was the tie-in to this movie, okay. following Logan, Iceman, and Nightcrawler. It bridges the gap between the films. Explains why why Nightcrawler is not there, and also introduces new foes to the game, such as Hydra, Hail Hydra, you know all that. Yeah, it Hail brings Hydra. back Tyler Maine because you know everyone was missing Tyler Maine, <laughs> and basically it's oh, what what's the part that people actually wanted for this one? Nightcrawler. So Nightcrawler at the e- very end of this big old battle with Sabretooth and so on that Nightcrawler doesn't want to be an X-Men. He says they're too, their lives are too violent for a peaceful man like him. And Xavier says he's always invited to the mansion. Kurt leaves. And, um, and then Cyclops goes to Jean Grey's house. Apparently has a vision of her alive with spiraling power spiraling out of control, um, resulting her in shutting the door on him. And then he starts having nightmares of a lake. So clearly mm. they had plans for where to go. And I think that would have been very like emotional hook, but then he left and they had to kind of do what they did. Yeah. They may do with the bad, the, a bad situation. Basically. Looks like I'm joined by a three year old. <laughs> hey there. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. It's, you mentioned the music. I also think this, the John Powell score is, is pretty, is one of my favorite parts of this movie, even though I miss John Ottman's theme, obviously. John Ottman's just like amazing, but John Powell, yeah, he has done like How to Train Your Dragon in Kung Fu Panda. I'm sorry, but yeah. those are amazing scores. So. And uh, no, they are. Don't and be sorry. I think he also did the music for Solo, a Star Wars story, which was okay. He's yeah, Rio. Rio has some darn good music too, and Shrek. Like he he does good stuff. It's just after Ottman. And Ottman did an amazing Superman score too. He sure did. And Ottman's a composer, direct, and composer and editor. Right. I think he's also a director too. But he he does a lot of stuff at the same time. And uh, I, I can't imagine composing the music and editing the movie at the same time. <laughs> I know. Uh, that just seems crazy. But yeah, I I'm glad they eventually settled on something. But I I I didn't really notice the music being that different in this movie. I just know it because uh, after a while you realize, oh, oh, these are all very different music scores. Yeah, yeah. Now we talked <laughs> that, on the first episode of this of this mega series about Michael Kamen's score for the first movie, which is also pretty good. Like the, the, that's the thing with this franchise; they they it's hard for them to land on a cohesive theme because they keep switching composers all the time. Uh, but the John Ottman one is the closest we get because it is in do, you know do, 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 it also things, kind of tags you more of them, yeah. into like the animated series a bit too. Yeah, definitely. But then like spirals off into its own thing, which I think was was a good way to go. I agree. This is more fun. More fun. And his music for X-Men Apocalypse, at least the, like the opening four tracks where he's like, it's still in Egypt. Yeah. That's kind that's of awesome. That's <laughs> just awesome yeah, stuff. it is. And even the music for like the TV show, The Gifted. Yeah. did that too. 
So good stuff. Yeah. Let's see. We you mentioned these uh, ones now. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, just to tie things up, you mentioned I wanted to. I mentioned at the end. You mentioned about uh, Gene's Gene's death, and I think it's really you, you Jackman's uh, no, his screaming no, which should be cheesy as hell, but I think he sells it and makes that work. And uh, you know, we mentioned about the Logan and Gene and how they have basically a flirtation in the first two movies, and then here, what happens here happens. Do you, do you <laughs> how do you do you think the Wolverine successfully builds on that because that's the next time that he's sort of haunted by uh, having to kill her. Do you think that 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 works considering that this, it sort of presents like, Oh, this was this great love that they have when it was really kind of unrequited. I think the Wolverine does the best of what exists Mm -hmm. in the music universe and they don't push it too much more than that. Cause Wolverine has other loves and uh, one of which is in that movie. Yeah. And I think they did that part fairly well in that movie. I do too. But I think they had to have acknowledged it if they're going to pretend it's in the same universe, right? So it, it is what it is. But I think I think they did the best with what they had available. And honestly, I don't think Famke Jansen did very good in this movie at all. She has like basically two note performance. She's either maniacal and sort of stone faced, or just like sobbing and just like kill me. So she's she's kind of limited in what she could do. I, that's why I said like I wish they would have picked one lane because trying to do both, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work. And this is also, as you, you know, you mentioned Sony with Spider-Man, this is the, both of those trilogies both kind of follow the trajectory of, you know, really, you know, really successful, solid first movie, especially in this case of Spider-Man second one that everyone is like, well, this is how you do a comic book movie. And the third one where that sort of goodwill is kind of squandered to varying degrees. How do you, how would you, how, where would you put this against Spider-Man three? Because I think for me, this at least for a while was more rewatchable because this is significantly has, more rewatchable than yeah. Spider-Man. Spider-Man three's yeah. lows. Like I saw your father that night in wounds <laughs> from his glider. Yeah. Oh, I have a complicated goodness. relationship with now, that movie. We there did, are some we good did an episode. In that movie too. Like yeah. Sandman's really good. Yeah. James Franco suddenly got really bad. Yeah. And I never liked Kirsten Dunst anyway. Oh, we did an episode on that movie and it's, it, it's really, it's, it's, we went super in depth on it and I have sort of a complicated relationship history with that movie, a complicated feelings about it. But I, I mean, I've come around to appreciate what it's trying to do uh, much more now. That's another and, one that should like, have been 20 minutes shorter or 20 minutes longer. Right. Yeah. Again, another this is the thing with these threequels and these Marvel pre MCU Marvel sequels, they were just cramming too much stuff in there. uh, And, you know, to their detriment, I think, again, that movie has multiple villains and multiple plot lines and it doesn't, it doesn't quite work. But so one thing I noticed, yeah. So after this movie, Avi Arad is no longer the producer. He produced this Mm -hmm. movie. You know, the consistent one after this one is Lauren Schuler Donner and I believe Ralph Winter comes back once, but Lauren Schuler Donner is the one who sticks around for the rest of the franchise. And I think that's why it starts getting more grounded, like yeah, consistent for a while. This is also the last one, I believe, where Kevin Feige is actually credited as like, you know, a producer of some kind or whatever. Yeah, because after this one, Kevin Feige went MCU. He's, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, if anyone thought this was the worst one, they must have not watched X-Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> I know. It's about to go. We're about to drop off a cliff. Hey, there's a uh, naked in man in our barn. What? There's a <laughs> naked man in our barn. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm. That'll be an interesting conversation the next sink, episode. We're gonna do the that. sink. The effects I know, of the claws I, and the thing. Like I know those CGI Jeez. look so bad. Did that hurt your hand? Yeah, <laughs> it definitely goes better from from that one though. Like I'll even say, Dark Phoenix is probably better than or, when Wolverine X Men Origins Wolverine. At least as far as like a consistent movie, right? A story that makes sense and yeah. <laughs> a consistent tone and all that but generally w- what would you say is the um first of all is there anything else about x-men the last stand we didn't say that you want to make sure we mentioned probably not there's a lot of cameos in this one i won't point them all out but there's a lot of cameos in this movie that i, I yeah. appreciate and i think they're done just right so that's a nice. good thing i like the i like the lineup that we get going into the final battle of storm beast wolverine Ki- uh kitty pride colossus and Iceman. Yeah, that's a the solid hero lineup. lineup yeah yeah no, no notes there. That's that's pretty solid. Cool. So, what would you consider? What is the the what is the legacy of this, the X Men movie franchise? What does it contribute to cinema and superhero genre? Well, without X Men and X Two, you would not have gotten the the, the MCU at all. Yeah. Spider Man is Spider Man, but X Men proved that you could do it with lesser known characters and have them stand up in that sort of story and go out there. Now that they go with comic accurate outfits, no. But it made it so it shows that these type of movies can happen and people will watch them. It also gave us a bunch of you know writers and people that would stick around for a while. You know, as I said, Zach Penn wrote a lot of these ones. He wrote Avengers. David Hayter yeah. wrote these ones. He helped write Watchmen. Michael Doherty, who wrote some of these ones, he went and directed what Godzilla King of Monsters and helped with Godzilla versus Kong and Movies like Trick or Treat, you know, people came from this franchise. David Benioff, of course, went to Game of Thrones. Skip Woods can go away. <laughs> Mark Bomback, who wrote uh, The Wolverine, he went and uh, wrote The Planet of the Apes, Dawn and Riot, War of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, which you I know, we just of, covered on this podcast. Yeah. So a lot of the people came from this one and went off and made fantastic other things. You know, Simon Kingberg, I, I don't know what happened there. I imagine by then it was just things were just spinning and the studio had no idea what the heck they were even doing. But a lot of interesting people came out of this one. A lot of good things. You know, Matthew Vaughn was discovered by a lot of people because of his work in first class. Mm-hmm. You know, before that one, yeah, he had done Kick-Ass but, and Stardust, but not a lot of people saw those ones. Yeah. And afterward, he was able to do Kingsman and so on, which helps him a lot. So I, I and I, I consider still consider these more interesting than a lot of the MCU ones, and even a lot of DC ones. I'll still watch them. I'm interested where they're going to go next. But I'm just glad how yeah. like these movies have so much different flavors. First Class is such a different movie than Deadpool. Logan is such a different movie than even The Wolverine. Yeah. X Two is very different than you know Days of Future Past. And you can, because of the continuity doesn't matter, you can just watch these and enjoy them for what they are individually. Yeah. And it works. And you can't do that with a lot of these other ones. Now, is that the best way to run a franchise? No. But, no, I, but it worked. 
Yeah. No, there, there's something, and I, I think this really kind of clicked for me with the, the Planet of the Apes mega series that I just completed, is that there's there, I'm almost nostalgic for a franchise where they're just like, this, let's just do this movie. Do we have planned sequels in, ma- in mind? Not necessarily. We'll see what happens. Where like well, in our last conversation, Beneath, they blew up the planet. And then they were like, all right, let's make another one now. How are we going to do that? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Like, I, I kind of <laughs> respect that. Yeah, well, they, they get to time travel in this franchise, too, in order to fix things. So that's uh, that's kind of what you do in Hollywood, I Heck, guess. Heck, in this franchise, Deadpool literally does time travel. Yeah. And kills people. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're bringing, uh, they're going to bring back Marina Baccarin as, as, uh, Vanessa and all that. And that's kind of because of the, the mid credit scene of, uh, Deadpool two, they're able to be like, yep, see, we, we well, took I know you're not, I know you're not going to talk Deadpool two, but the fact that he goes back to the Wolverine and yeah. just executes that thing, like, oh, yeah, that was very, probably for the best. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny how much of the DNA of the MCU starts really starts here and Spider-Man, which are kind of in tandem. But like you said, this is, they were bringing all kinds of, it, it's also Marvel's first uh, attempt at an ensemble film, which yeah. I, we would, I think you and I would probably both agree that the balance of the ensemble is kind of all over the place with these original, with these, this, this trilogy. I think it's basically all Xavier, Magneto and Wolverine. And then eh, everybody else is there. Yeah. And before I think first people class probably start pulls commenting and, and asking us, yes, I know Blade did exist right. in the 90s and is Marvel and did help save Marvel, but that's not very the same so. type of film as X-Men. People don't no, associate not, Blade with X-Men very much. Yeah. How many... Blade is also uh, R-rated, super violent. It's not exactly, you know, you're not... But kids it did aren't prove, going to school it wearing did prove backpack, that people could do this and watch it. So yes, yes I, I do much. admit that one, but X-Men is a different league of its own. And it, you know, it continued. It done. So. And it will be back in some form <laughs> or another. Uh, so generally, like I said, there's 10 of these movies that we're covering. What are kind of your top three ish? If you so have not to, counting to Deadpool movies, out. right? Not counting Deadpools or, or new mutants. Like not that, that I was going to put new mutants in here anyway. Yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, uh, number one is days future past. Easy. Yeah. The fact that it combined everything and it worked. And made me cry at the end for people that didn't die. <laughs> yeah. That, that showed that, 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 that works and the emotional payoff of days of future past from both casts is amazing. Even the score, like the song hope that was all over the trailer where I know. you see the trailer with Charles talking to Charles, like it's just pitch perfect. I can't wait to rewatch that for this mega series. Cause I, I love that one as well. It's been a while. First class is the second best one. That's when I keep on forgetting how much, how good it is. And I watch it. And go, this mm-hmm. movie is really good. Then it leans on that, Fassbender and McAvoy in a way that these lean on Stewart and, and McKellen for sure. Which it should. It needed to in those ones. Yeah, definitely. Now after that, it really depends. Cause like dark Phoenix's opening is probably the best mummy movie we've ever had. <laughs> and then he starts making clothes. <laughs> which oh sorry not dark phoenix apocalypse apocalypse yeah not dark phoenix dark phoenix doesn't make clothes apocalypse uh the wolverine has some great stuff and then a weird finale once they bring in the samurai yeah and of course tongue lizard lady viper x2 yeah. has an amazing opening scene with nightcrawler absolutely probably best scene in the entire franchise complete with the music and everything fantastic so my mm-hmm. third one bounces around it'd probably be x2 just because the cast is really great and that opening that opening scene is just like blew me away mm-hmm. absolutely just 
blew me away. And, and it, it doesn't it doesn't really balance the ensemble particularly well because the, again you do have Cyclops kind of sideline side and stuff. But the fo- who they the stories that they do focus on just work really well, and it just has a for the most part it has a propulsion to it, and I think balances that with like we're saying the sort of one uh, Rebecca Romain social commentary like, steals that movie. She totally does. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about Logan? Oh, I forgot about okay. Logan <laughs> is a fantastic movie. It is hard to watch. Yeah, mostly because it's it's kind of like I forgot his name. Um, Man in Black, country singer Johnny Cash. His yeah. song "Hurt." Yeah, yeah, there you go. It's like watching the song, the music video for "Hurt" over and over. Good music video, fantastic song for him. Did it mm-hmm. better than the original band, but it's a painful song. Right. And Logan, though, is a very good movie with great performances from literally everyone in that movie. It is hard to watch and it doesn't feel as much of an X-Men movie because no. there are not really X-Men in it. It even gave a Stephen Merchant in a good X-Men role, which is like, I know how <laughs> it's Stephen Merchant. How does this happen? But it, it, that movie works really well. So that one, I. It's hard, it's right? <laughs> probably the best made movie in the whole one, but it doesn't really feel like an X Men yeah. movie. And I was working okay, working through that entire movie, waiting for Sinister to show up, and he didn't. And as why is Sinister? They teased him in five movies, I and he never shows up. <sighs> yeah, five no, movies. I know, I know. That's it's it's such a standalone in a lot of ways because it, it, it. I mean, it 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 kind of references the X Men. It's myth. a standalone that pays Just, off if you already know yeah, what what X Men exactly. are, right? And that's the and cool course, thing about it. There's a story reason for why there are no X Men in there, which goes into how like heavy and kind of bleak that movie is in general. Oh, and it's and it's almost it's not even anywhere near as dark as the comic is, where he's just like, oh, you got tricked to do what? Oh, naughty boy. <laughs> where he has like uh, blind. Um, when he has Hawkeye with him, who's crippled, and there's like the, mm. the Hick Hulk people, and like, ugh. yeah, yeah. Oh, they would never make that movie proper now. <laughs> but no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. I'll stick with that. I'll go Days of Future Past, First Class, probably X Two, but Logan is the, uh, by the best made of them. It's just yeah. it doesn't really feel like an X Men movie. Um, I did see, it. I did like Apocalypse. As I said, Dark Phoenix, I did not see in theaters. It's it's watchable, but not good. Yeah, New Mutants I is do- not good. <laughs> I you said you like Apocalypse? I, I can watch I, it. It's I like I, it well I, enough. I think that's that's the one that I'm like the mild defender of. That I will almost be like, it's not as bad as everybody says it is. Like oh, it's, it's not as bad as, right. as people say it is. It's like it's like yeah. the Last Stand. It's not yeah, as bad exactly. as people say it is. And the scenes with uh, Quicksilver are still just as good as they've ever been. Absolutely. The opening is great. It's really dark. Ty Sheridan's not that great as Cyclops, but I don't think you're supposed to be that good as Cyclops by then anyway. Yeah. Um, Olivia Munn looked like Psylocke. <laughs> There's that. Nightcrawler was fine. I like Alexander Ship as as Storm. I do too. One. Yeah. Yeah. There's some I cool stuff going Jubilee on. Jubilee supposedly movie. in that movie again. Kinda. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's some good things in that movie. I, I just never liked Apocalypse as a villain anyway. My favorite villain has always been either Magneto or Sinister. And we got one right. of them and we've never gotten the other. I, well, then I think there, I think we just pinpointed what the MCU needs to prioritize in the X-Men Mr. films Sinister. that they do. Let's get it done. Like, obviously, or Master gonna, Mold. Master Mold would be really cool. 
somebody. I mean, I think first, I think the number one person stay they away another, from Striker. Yeah, stay away from Striker. Stay away from Apocalypse. You know, I, I, the foundation of this franchise, and this has been consistent throughout this trilogy, is the the Xavier Magneto dynamic. It's the it's the pendulum of this whole franchise, and I think. It establish those two characters, give us some of the original X-Men and then, you know, build up to Mr. Sinister as like, you know, one of the or, big or give threats. us a team without those ones and just focus on Cyclops being a leader. Cyclops and go. Storm. You can do that. Yeah. But I got to, I got to start wrapping up because it's almost bedtime. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. So <laughs> Jeremiah, this has been a blast. Thanks for coming on. Tell people where they can find you uh, on social media. Tell them what you're up to. I meant to ask that up front and I forgot to do so. Yeah. You can find me mostly on, on YouTube, let's talk, let's, let's talk entertainment. We review terrible horror movies, review asylum films, because, you know, they're such classics. We talk about streaming news and so on, which there's been a lot about. So that's where you can find me. Let's talk entertainment. For the most part, that's, that's where you see me. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. This was a blast. Uh, I appreciate your time, and uh, we'll, we'll have you on again soon. Thanks, my friend. Yeah, too bad I can't talk about Apocalypse. There's a lot I could talk about that movie, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. Oh, I bet. so much. <laughs> but yeah. Right. Thank you. It fun. Big thanks to Jeremiah Stewart from Let's Talk for coming on to discuss 2006's X-Men The Last Stand. Definitely a film that I'm a mild defender of. Uh, a movie that I find shades of the movie it could have been still linger within it. Uh, not Certainly not a dumpster fire, as maybe a couple of these other ones we'll get to will turn out to be. But I want to know, what do you think about X-Men The Last Stand? Find me on Twitter, at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram, via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be back next episode with a little bit of a, a, a franchise detour detour. Uh, circling back around to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the new film, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. I'll give you my sort of uh, one-person stream of consciousness style review. We did that previously for Evil Dead Rises uh, and The Matrix Resurrections, both on this feed. Uh, But for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. We'll talk Turtles, then we'll be right back to X-Men the following episode. Till then, catch you the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.